epistle for this first Sunday of Advent is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Brethren, knowing the time that it is now the hour for us to rise from sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is past, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and impurities, not in contention and envy, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the 21st chapter of the gospel of St. Luke. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations by reason of the confusion of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, men withering away for fear and expectation of what shall come upon the whole world. For the powers of heaven shall be moved, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and majesty. But when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is at hand. And he spoke to them as similitude, See the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth their fruit, you know that summer is nigh. So you also, when you shall see these things come to pass, know that the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen, I say to you, this generation shall not pass away till all things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. My dear faithful, both this Sunday and last Sunday, the Church presents us with Gospels that speak about the end of the world, the last judgment. And I want to try to prepare you, help you start to prepare for Christmas today, by telling you the same thing that I told the North Dakotans last week, and that is that we must be careful not to desire the end of the world too much or hope that the end of the world will happen soon. I think we all have something of the last judgment lover in us, and this is all the more true when it's been a a tough year and when the evil of the world seems to be coming uh, more and more apparent. Because it's, it's a dangerous thing to be a, a last judgment lover. This, having this anxiety for Christ's second coming can be an obstacle for us to prepare for his first coming when he came at Christmas time. And the reason for this is that the last judgment lover tends to have the wrong idea of God or wants God to be in a certain way that in fact God is not. He wants God to be a sensationalist when God is, in fact, very discreet. He wants God to act suddenly and quickly when God most often acts slowly and over long periods of time. He wants God to manifest himself and especially for God to make a show of his power. But God is not inclined to do this. and He only does it very rarely. Such a person looks at God working in the world, in the history of the world, and tends to only see those epic events that, that do happen from time to time, but, but don't really happen very often. And I look at all the incredible miracles performed for the people of Israel 
such as the, the parting of the Red Sea or Moses going up into Mount Sinai and there was all the clouds and the thunder and, and the lightning. He comes down with the, these horns of light coming out from him. Or the, the, the people walking around the, the walls of Jericho seven times and blowing the trumpet and the walls fell down. Things, things like that, these, these incredible events. Or, or perhaps they even think about uh, events that are much more recent, that, that are likewise sensational, such as the spinning of the sun in 1917, just about 100 years ago, you know, 70,000 people witnessed this unbelievable event of, of, of the sun spinning. They think about these things, and they, they look at the bad state of, of the world, and they expect something extraordinary to happen any moment now. And if it's not the last judgment, maybe we can get the three days of darkness. Maybe we can have a comet or a little asteroid strike the earth um, and, and wipe out the, the, the bad people um, and usher in a new era, purify the world. And um, yes, in a, in a very striking nuclear way, uh, change the, the situation in which we're in. Well, the thing is that it's not really likely that something extraordinary like that is going to happen because, normally speaking, God is very shy and discreet. And it's important, very important for us to understand that. The better that we're able to come to terms with this fact and the reason for this fact, the better we will be able to prepare for our Lord's coming on Christmas Day and cooperate with the providence of God. I mean, you think about it, if, if God's going to come into this world one time in the whole history of the world, you would think that, that he would come with incredible pomp and circumstance. But this is not at all what he did. He, he came with an incredible display, not of power, but of lowliness and humility. And then when he went on to live his public life, God on earth was so discreet, was so unassuming, was so humble. Remember that time when the apostles uh, and, and our Lord were wanting to enter into a city of Samaria and they refused them. They said, you can't come in here. And the apostles said to our Lord, Lord, are you going to call down fire from heaven to destroy this city? And he said to them, you know not of what spirit you are. The Son of Man did not come to destroy souls, but to save them. Remember how many times people wanted to make our Lord King, to seize him, to put him on some chair and parade him around and say, we have a king. And our Lord would always flee from them when they wanted to do that. Remember how humble our Lord was in working miracles, how often he avoided fanfare, how often he told the beneficiary of his miracle not to tell anybody. It was about a month ago we, we uh, had that Mass where the Gospel told the story of our Lord curing the daughter of Jairus. And so he goes into the room where the, the, the girl is, is dead. He's lying there dead. And he's going he's gonna to raise her from the dead. But the first thing that he does is he says, everybody go out. Everybody go out. Except the father and his three beloved apostles, his three closest apostles. The same thing we can, we can see happens when at the wedding feast uh, of Cana. Um, that 
that he's it's so typical of, how, of his discretion in working miracles. If you had a magician there, the magician would, would say, okay, everybody, you know, come around. I'm going, I'm going to perform a trick now. And he wants to make sure that, that everybody notices what he's doing. But our Lord is, is not one who performs tricks. He's, he's one who's, who has the capacity to do real miracles. So he knows he's going to perform this miracle, but he's so discreet about it. He, he, he doesn't say what he's going to do. He just tells the waiters, fill the jars with water. And he doesn't go over the jars. He doesn't say to everybody, okay, everybody, I'm going to perform a miracle now. Everybody pay attention. And then sort of wave his arms around the, the water. And say, it's now wine. I've just changed it to wine. Everybody come and drink from this wine. See what I've done. He just tells them, take, take the jars to the chief steward. And only then, when he tastes it, he doesn't even know what's, what's going on. He says, wow, this is great wine. And then they have wine for the feast. And probably the vast majority of the people there did not know what had just happened. This is exactly the way that God works with us, without fanfare, without ostentation. You know, God he's, has the power to work miracles constantly if he wanted to, but they're extremely rare. He could have us born on, on, on Mars, for instance, on some barren planet, and then decide after so many years there to transport us to Earth, and we would see this Earth, and we would just be like, wow, this is incredible. Our God is so great. He's so wonderful to us to provide that, that contrast. He could speak to us or appear to us on a regular basis, every day, if he wanted to. He could make our lives a series of sensational events. But he doesn't do it. And he's not going to do it. The way, the, the characteristics, the standard characteristics of God working with us are two. He works with us invisibly, and he works with us gently. That's the way that God works with us. His normal way of working with us is through grace, and you cannot see grace. Grace is something that is invisible. It touches your spiritual faculties, which cannot be seen. And God most often touches your intellect and your will those purely spiritual faculties that are given to you to move your intellect to know supernatural truth, to move your will to choose supernatural good. And because he's touching your spiritual faculties, it's very gentle. It's very quiet. It's very unassuming. Grace works very subtly. It's much more like the blowing of a soft breeze than the whirling of a tornado. And as a result, those who follow grace have to be very attentive to God. He's not going to overwhelm you. He's going to lead you one little step at a time towards sanctity, one little grace at a time towards holiness. I think we have to admit that we really struggle with this. We find this difficult. We can become impatient with God. We want God to show himself to the world. We want God to show himself to us. We don't understand why he doesn't work more directly with us, why he doesn't intervene more powerfully in our lives. We don't understand, for instance, why he has to hide himself 
And Beto is so discreet in the Blessed Sacrament, hide himself under the appearances of bread and wine. Why is he so modest and humble when he has all power and can do whatever he wishes? We want to say with the psalmist, rise up, Lord, show yourself. Instead of St. Paul telling us today to rise from sleep, we want to tell God to rise from sleep. And these feelings especially happen to us when we're frustrated with the world that we live in or we're frustrated with our own Catholic life. We tend to want to blame God. Where is God, we say? We think that God's too distant, that he should have more frequent and more forceful interventions. The thing is, God has very, very good reasons for behaving the way that he does. The first and the most important reason for God to be so discreet is that he wants you to love him truly. And as such, he has to work with you very delicately. We all know how, with our fallen human nature, how quickly we tend to be very selfish in love and not really love the other, but love ourselves in our loving, in our apparent loving it's so easy for us to love God for selfish reasons. It's so easy for us to do religion for selfish reasons. And that's not good for us. If God gave you a good feeling every time that you prayed, then you would not love God for himself, but you would love God for the good feeling. If God gave you what you wanted, what you asked for every time that you prayed, then you would love God for what he gives you, not because he's God. And most importantly, if God intervened every time you had difficulty or disturbances to remove them and make sure that you didn't have to go through anything difficult in this life, then you would never have an opportunity to prove your love for God. You would never be able to step forward and show that you really love God truly. And this is why God has to play hard to get, as it were. He has to be very careful in the gifts that he gives you. The second reason why he does this is almost as, as important as the first. And this is that God wants to make sure that you are sanctified in this life. And for you to be sanctified, you have to do things. It's important that he not do everything for you, but he, he leaves you room to act, that he assists you to act, but that in the end, you are truly acting, that you are truly doing things to move towards him. You have to replicate the life of Jesus Christ in this life. You have to suffer disappointment and still serve God. You have to undergo trials and still serve God. You have to experience dryness and lack of consolation in your relationship with God and still serve God. You have to have that ability to walk towards God in the path of righteousness without God stepping in and doing everything for you. And only if you persevere in the service of God in those circumstances will you actually grow, will you actually grow in love of him and become more perfect as a person. The only way 
for you to become unselfish in your service of God is for you to do unselfish things for him. And God has to, to make sure that you have those opportunities. He can't be continually removing all difficulties in your life. And, th- and this is why, in the end, God works much more on your spiritual faculties than your material faculties. Your mind and your will represent your true self much more than your emotions. And so God gently touches your mind and your will with his graces to see if you will correspond them. And he doesn't give you, he, most of the time, he doesn't give you uh, a sensual gratification, some sort of sensual pleasure in doing religious things. And if you serve him under that influence of grace that's working on those spiritual faculties, then you will definitely be a true lover of God. And you will be more perfect as a person. You will be becoming better. And you will be advancing towards perfection. Whereas if you serve him because of some emotion that you have or something that you get from God, you're left in your selfishness. In the end, our Lord loves us and he very much desires our love, but he's not going to seek our love in such a way that does not truly sanctify us. He's not going to force us to love him. He's always going to offer his love and then leave the free choice to ourselves. Here's something that 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 wonderful author I was speaking about a few weeks ago, Carol Hauslander, the British British woman who died in 1954. Here's what she says about this. Christ never forced his love on anyone. Though he is perfection, he never allowed himself to dominate the will and mind of another with his own. The impulse of grace is never a violation of the individual soul. Instead, it is a gentle, almost imperceptible movement of the inward life. It could be likened to the quickening of the seed in the earth when the warmth and the light of the sun, which is burning in heaven, comes down through the darkness and enters into it, and the tender green shoot pushes towards the light, compelled by the very sun that is so far away and yet is within it. God moves towards you, but he doesn't smother you. He waits for your heart to move towards him. He offers his grace, but he doesn't force you to accept it. I mean, it could be that God will intervene in some extraordinary way tomorrow. It's up to God. He can do that. He can do whatever he wants, but it's definitely not likely. We cannot count on that. We cannot expect that. And if we do, it's likely that we will fail to make use of the ordinary ways in which God works with our soul every single day. Our Lord is hidden in this world, and we have to go out and we have to find him in everything that happens to us and all the things that we do. But we can only do that with faith, hope, and love. So, my dear faithful, today we begin the season of Advent. This time when we prepare ourselves to journey towards Bethlehem and find our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come to us in an unbelievably ordinary way. And to find him, we're going to have to seek him out. He's not going to manifest himself to us with great fanfare. He's going to come as a tiny infant in an out-of-the-way cave. 
You're not going to find them if you're looking for them in massive signs and wonders. You're going to have to look for someone extremely gentle and discreet. You're going to have to pay careful attention to his quiet, invisible grace. You're going to have to be willing to put forth effort yourself and not expect him to do everything. You're going to have to suffer trials and still persevere in your journey to reach him. But if you do these things, something very great will have happened along the way. You will have become a saint. And in the end, that is the great good that God desires for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.